Welcome back to Let's Get Haunted with your hosts, Nat Strawn and Allie. Welcome back, haunties, to episode 137 of Let's Get Haunted. Before we get into today's episode, I just need to insert a quick disclaimer here for anyone listening who might be new to the show. Each month, Nat and I switch off telling each other spooky stories from around the world. This week, it's my turn, and even though you, the listener, can see what the topic of today's show is by reading the title, Nat cannot. She is going into this story completely blind because it's just more fun to listen to a story that you don't already know the ending to. But before we get into today's story, Nat and I have some catching up to do. So if you don't want to listen to us chat with each other, shout out our donors, do some housekeeping, or thank our sponsors, and instead you'd like to skip straight to the story in today's title, all you have to do is expand the show notes and the first sentence of the description in all caps will say SKIP TO and then a timestamp. You can skip to that time at any time. Otherwise, if you're still here listening, welcome to today's intro. Very delighted to be here with you guys for yet another episode of a fucking crazy haunted conspiracy that I stumbled across on the internet. But before we get to that, we just wanted to give a really quick shout out because if you haven't heard yet, we launched a Patreon on March 1st. So if you haven't already subscribed there, go ahead, check it out in the show notes because we have a ton of extras posted there this month for you guys to check out, including the video version of episode 135, which was about a crazy UFO sighting on Japan Airlines Flight 1628. And we also have extra hours of audio footage from our season premiere episode on OP Rock. We uploaded the full interview version of everyone that was interviewed for that episode. So if you are, you know, going about your month and you're like, shit, it's not Wednesday yet. What do I do? You can go to patreon.com slash let's get haunted and subscribe there to our Patreon for extra content for, I was about to say for free, but it's not for free. These episodes that you're listening to right now are free, but if you want something extra, you can head over to our Patreon. That is accurate. And Natalia, do you want to explain to people where you are right now? Yeah, so I'm hoping it's not too echoey. I'm actually recording from Florida. I'm in actually don't fucking know where I am. Okay, long story short, I am at a horse show. It's called the Wellington International Equestrian Festival. I don't know what the fuck it's called. Something like that. It's like a big deal. Anyways, everyone from my barn went to it. And this is like the the longest, oldest horse show running in the world, I'm pretty sure. I am not qualified to be here, but I just started riding at this new barn. And they were all like, yeah, so we're going to WEF. Um, we're just going to be there like all, all winter. And I was like, what are you talking about? And they were like, yeah, they like literally take their horses and live in Florida for three months out of the year. So I feel like I had to like make an appearance here, you know, like just to keep the relationship at my new barn because I don't know them well enough and I really didn't want to get kicked out because I had to like cold call new barns when I moved to Atlanta. I don't know. In LA, it's like, here, take my money. And then a business is like, oh, yay, someone's giving us money. Let me offer you a service. But when I moved to Atlanta, it was weird. It was like, I no one would take me into their barn and then I started getting like self-conscious about it. And I was like, well, are they, do they like Google my name and see that I like have a stupid 
podcast and they were like no we don't want this haunted shit yeah long story short i feel obligated to come here and now and then it's been like a nightmare we we everyone in our family got the stupid norovirus and so i was like taking care of sick throwing up diarrhea baby meanwhile i was also not feeling well we just went to the airbnb that i booked today had never been there before and i had booked it because it was really cheap and it was next to the venue and i was like oh cool so like i'm saving money here but we drove up and it was literally like and not like a trailer like a trailer home this was like a trailer that attaches to a car that people could live in you know what i'm talking about i i'm envisioning like one of those little miniature things that like your truck tows yes it looks nothing like the pictures at all in the pictures it was like a cute sort of modest home and i was just like okay cool this is like good vibes you know like a barbecue with the family so we pulled up and we're in the truck and cody is just like what the fuck is this i'm just trying to act like everything's normal you know because i'm the one who booked this and no one wants to be on this stupid horse trip at all so i'm just like oh yeah like this looks cool <laughs> there's like a giant just ditch running through the middle of it that might have had water in it at some point i don't know but it's like full of rusted old like trash now and uh he was like enzo cannot play around here and i was just like well you know maybe inside will be nice and cody was just like stay here and he opened up that he opened up his door he closed the door locked it and then just starts like going outside and walking around the house and looking around it like he doesn't even want to go in this airbnb and while he's looking around like casing this house making sure like no one's gonna just come out and grab us i don't know i'm looking around and i'm like holy shit there are a bunch of trailers on this property people are living in i don't know what the fuck anyways so cody comes back and he's like you're no we're not staying here i'm not gonna leave you here like i'm not we're not staying here and that's it that's the end of it so then i'm just like oh shit now everyone's in a really foul mood because we're trying scrambling trying to figure out where are we gonna stay what are we gonna do it's super crowded and busy here because of the stupid equestrian festival right now so everything's really expensive and it's like there's no there's nothing in existence it's like trying to book a house for coachella like the day of coachella right like impossible impossible um and so finally cody just like rage booked this place that we're at now which is nice it's like right on the ocean and beautiful but it's really fucking old and weird and it's like i don't know i feel like it's like a house of wax community where everyone is gonna like come out and eat us or something i don't know i mean i'm sorry that you're experiencing that but at the same time i'm kind of excited because i'm hoping that it's haunted or like a haunted person is living in the walls and you're gonna have some good content for our next intro how is that good content uh because <laughs> you can you can explain uh, a harrowing ordeal like imagine this imagine tonight after we record this episode no you're in bed you're drifting off to sleep and all of a sudden you like your sleepy eyes open because you're like oh what was that did i hear a noise and you can just hear the sound of nails scraping along the wall above your head. And then you look up and oh there's just God. an old, old woman. Fuck you. With like <laughs> you. crazy, like scraggly hair, scraggy hair, dripping wet with water. She's in, you know what I'm imagining? Have you ever seen that M. Night Shyamalan movie, The Visit? 
where those old people are pretending yeah. to be grandparents. It's been a while since I've seen it. But essentially, there's like this old couple pretending like masquerading to be someone else. And they just have like a stash of dirty diapers hidden underneath the house. That's what I'm envisioning for you right now in this Airbnb. Wait, they have a stash of dirty diapers Yes, under the do house? you not remember that? Oh my God, it was crazy. That's like the only part from that movie I remember. Why do they have that? Um, God, it's been so long since I've seen it. But from what I remember, it was some situation where this brother and sister hadn't seen their grandparents in like 20 years and decided to go spend the summer with them or something. And so they get dropped right. off. They don't have a car, if I remember correctly. And they get dropped off. And they don't really know what their grandparents look like anymore because it's been so long. And they're just yeah. hanging out with this couple that had like actually broken into the house and murdered their grandparents. One of them is like incontinent. And the other one just keeps stashing the dirty diapers under the house. They don't need to keep it clean. They're just broke into squatting. this house. Yeah, squatting. And so when these kids showed up there, they were just like, oh, sure. Like, well, we'll because, pay you for the summer. Because they don't know. <laughs> they don't know at first. Like, and then pr progressively as the movie goes on, it just gets more and more batshit insane. And then one of them like follows one of the grandparents um, without the grandparent knowing because they see them working under this house all the time. And so he follows mm -hmm. them down there and just sees mountains of dirty, disgusting, poopy diapers, like with flies crawling all over. And, and then that's when they start to realize like, oh, <laughs> shit, like so, this isn't our grandparents. That's, that's so fucking upsetting. I feel like I'm going to cry right now because I... I legit last night thought that I saw a ghost. You guys, Natalia texted me today and it was just a text that said, oh my God, I think I saw a ghost. I'm just texting you so that I remember to tell you on the show. So I literally know no information beyond that. Stop me at any point if this is not interesting because I'm working with like one brain cell here. I'm like super sleep deprived deprived from all this traveling i drove nine hours to get to this stupid horse show thing uh, you know oh, wow. like and then i just haven't slept since then yeah so everyone else flew and i drove and they met me here so i like literally drove from my house nine hours and then picked them up at the airport so that way because i'm telling you no one gives a fuck about this horse thing at all and so i'm like just trying to make wait, this work wait why did you ha why did you drive was it just easier to drive with enzo or what's what happened no it's my so my my fiance and enzo flew but i drove because i thought nine hours with a toddler would just not be possible and we're staying here for like a little under two weeks so in my mind i was like okay we'll save money because we're gonna need a car and i don't want to oh, rent a car for two weeks gotcha. and i also want to bring a bunch of stuff with us you know so i brought like groceries and like things from our house to make it more comfortable since we're going to be here for two weeks and I like I to come out here was really expensive and it also just makes no sense because I'm like not a good rider at all so that's not true I like made a whole I mean I not that I you. know anything about horses but from the videos I've watched I thought it looked really fucking cool thank you um anyways but like I had to put a whole powerpoint presentation together to come to this where I was like Wellington 2023 something for everyone wait you and gave I was like, did you give a presentation to your family to convince yes, them? Yes, I did. Oh my God. I convinced them. What? Yes, it was beautiful. And I and on the cover page, it had like a picture of like a beautiful horse. And then I put like a hot girl <laughs> for some reason for my fiance. Like, so in his mind, he's going to be like, yeah, there's just going to be like hot girls everywhere. And then I had like the a beach and like Disneyland and all of this stuff. And it was like Wellington 2023, something for everyone. And it was like, picture this, family memories 
in the sand, uh, evoking summer is just around the corner. I don't know. I used all of these. Like, it, w- it was great. It was like a brochure. Got them to agree to it. But a huge part of agreeing to it was like, hey, look, I'm going to make this so easy for for you and everyone in our family. Like, you're just going to basically show up and like, this is what's oh, going to happen. So I gotcha. part of that was me being like, don't worry about anything. Like, I'm going to drive. You don't even have to check your bags because I'm going to put the bags in my truck Got and it. drive all the way down. And all you have to do is get on a flight for an hour and 30 minutes and then walk off the flight. And I'll pick you up out of the airport. So I'm like working with no sleep. Anyways, fast forward to because I'm a dumbass, I <laughs> booked the the uh, haunted trailer house for the wrong dates anyways. So we had to find a last minute accommodation for the first night that we were here. No big deal. We found this Fairfield Inn Suites. I think it's like a, a Marriott type thing. It was nice, you know. And but it's super not haunted. Like you know what a Marriott is like. Like every room right. looks the same. Mm-hmm. There's like free breakfast. Like this is not the kind of place where there's a ghost. Right. right. Oh no, absolutely not. There would be no ghost there. Why would you want to spend your afterlife walking around like rooms that all look the same? The continental breakfast right. is one hard boiled egg and four different cereals <laughs> in those little cereal dispensers all in a row that have been there for like five years, so they're stale. Like, no. This is why I want to be shot off a pier in a cannon. Because then <laughs> my soul will reside in the ocean versus the La Quinta that I actually died in. Now, continue. Sorry for that. <laughs> so I'm, you know, putting put everyone to sleep. We're staying in one room, me, my, uh, my fiance and the baby. And we're all sleeping in this bed and everything's fine. I mean, you got three people in a bed, right? Where everything's fine. Zero haunting available. I'm not even feeling haunted at all. I'm just really <laughs> tired. So I'm sleeping. And then all of a sudden I got like a weird thing where I like felt... I don't know. I was asleep, but I felt like there was someone standing next to my bed. Oh. And I thought it was Cody. Like I had thought he had walked from his side of the bed over to my side of the bed. And I thought maybe he was going to tell me like he didn't want to wake Enzo up because Enzo was in between us. And so maybe he walked over to my side and was going to be like, hey, uh, I need to, you know, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> I don't know. Or what, whatever he was going to say. Who knows? Um, maybe he was going to be like, you started your period and I'm leaving you. I don't know what he was going to say, but I looked over and I see his like a weird silhouette of, um, of a man who's about the same height as him. And then I'm like trying to, I'm looking at him closely and I'm waiting for my eyes to sort of adjust to the dark and like for him to come into view. And then I realized that it's not Cody at all standing there. It is a different man. And then in my mind, I'm like, this can't be fucking real. And I'm like, I'm dreaming. This is a dream. This is not real. There's no way there's a man right there that's not Cody. And as I think that in my mind, this isn't Cody. Like, this is a dream. Oh, I'd have chills just thinking about it. I'm going to cry. I, the man comes into focus and it looks like a decayed, like bloated, like waterlogged. Like imagine a body that's been like waterlogged and decayed and bloated. And he's like hair is like over his face, sort of like, I don't know, like if Leonardo DiCaprio was found like four days after drifting at sea, oh that's what God. it looked like. And as I think this is not Cody, I go, I think in my mind, like, this is a, this is a ghost. I think that in my head and the thing looks at me and smiles like this and then does this with its finger. 
Natalia is holding up one pointer finger next to her face. So her hand's making a fist, except the pointer finger is pointing straight up. And then she's wiggling the pointer finger as it points towards the ceiling. Yeah, he just gave me a smirk and wiggled his finger. And I screamed. I go, ah! screamed. And the horror that came over me realizing that I was actually not asleep. I was awake and I had just screamed out loud. And I look over and Cody's looking at me like, why the fuck are you screaming? And then the thing was gone or whatever. What? So Wait, so you screamed in real life? Like not in a dream? Yeah, yeah. I screamed in real life because I was like, there's a person in my room. I'm getting ready to get like killed or something. I don't know. Oh you know, what? God. why would there be a person in my room? And so in the morning I told Cody about it and I was like, hey, remember when I screamed last night? And he was like, yeah, what the fuck were you doing? And then I was like, I think I saw a ghost. And I told him the story and he was like, get your haunted shit away from me. And and just like ran to the other side of the room. And I was like, no, you're supposed to tell me that it was a dream and I was just dreaming. Yeah, and like, like everything's sleep paralysis. Fine. Yeah. And he was like, no, it's not fine. Get your haunted shit away from me. And he was like more mad at me for like having seen a ghost. <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't even know what to say to that. Honestly, as you were describing this to me, the first thought that came to my mind was like, holy shit, how fucking creepy is it that you didn't even tell me that story? And the first thing I say to you when we get on this Zoom call is like, oh, you're going to wake up to the sound of like, nails scratching above your bed and you're gonna look up and there's just gonna be like a dripping wet old woman that's what i was telling that's why i was like this is not cool why did you say dripping wet i don't know it's just what i pictured in my mind like looking at where you are right now the vibe that i'm getting of that like background is just like an old because you said you were on the beach and so in my mind i'm picturing like old florida condo on the beach like probably a generational house owned by a lot of different people it's a rental unit right so it's like used for air Airbnb so it's probably been inherited by like you know the grandchildren that are now adults of like you know whoever first bought it back in the day because it sounds like it hasn't been renovated in a long time so it's probably not a new purchase so then in my mind I'm thinking okay it was probably purchased from someone who like bought that unit to retire because Florida is like infamous for like older people retiring there and it was probably a single woman I don't know why I think that and so I'm thinking Mm -hmm. she's like you know in the ocean like living her best life comes back to her unit and just like dies of a stroke and then like you know now it's owned by the grandkids and being rented out as a rental property now why my fucked up brain invented that backstory in three seconds I don't know but that is what I pictured when I can see your zoom background yeah dude so I don't fucking know I don't know if I'm just under a lot of stress but there's a few things that don't make sense about it why would a ghost be haunting a fucking (laughs) fair Marriott Fairmount whatever that place was called a Fairfield Inn in Springs right and then the second thing is no that's actually it there's why would there be a ghost there Wellington is like there's nothing there I think this is the only time of the year where it gets any action and it's because there's this big equestrian center there and it's like literally it's so yeah that in itself is haunted I went there for the first time today and I was like this is fucking terrifying I don't know why I'm doing this this is so scary it's like they have like hundreds of tents full of horses and they're just like all horse girls and like everyone's really serious around you and you're just like why am I doing this to myself this is so scary but it could be fun (laughs) because normally you're the only horse girl in the group of friends right so now you're like a horse girl Mm -hmm. amongst fellow horse girls that's a good point I need to make like 
I, I get intimidated by the other people who are in the ring during like the warm up session because you're all just in there riding horses and of like of course your horse is freaking out because it's like where the fuck are we who are these other horses why are we here why what are we doing and then it's just like hard to ride and I, I just need to remember that everyone else is just a horse girl yeah that's it yeah like there's no reason to be scared of them they're horse girls picture them <laughs> in middle school with braces a middle part frizzy hair <laughs> And right. holding like a notebook that they would doodle horses on. Right. Yeah. And they're like galloping at recess. Yeah. Yes. Those. That's my personal haunting. That's and... extremely haunted. I tried to Google Wellington, Fairfield Inn and Suites death and I couldn't find anything. But I also didn't try very hard because we're recording. So if any of our right. listeners have excellent Google skills and can figure out what's going on at that place. I mean, I, I just feel like Florida is like a fucking weird ass place. I would not be surprised if the whole thing is built on a burial ground. We'll see. We're I think we're going to record another episode while I'm here. So I'll let you guys know how my first horse show goes. It's going to be tomorrow morning. And I'll let you guys know if I see another ghost tonight. I really hope I don't. I'm really scared now. Yeah. As I said, I'm torn. I kind of want you to see a ghost, but I also like I wouldn't want to be in that position. So I can't like wish that upon you, obviously. So I will just say like, I hope <laughs> that you don't see a ghost. But if you do, I look forward to the next intro of our podcast. Wow. Thank you for your kind words, Allie. <laughs> do you have any personal hauntings? I have a positive haunting I'd like to share with everyone this week. And that is that this episode is sponsored. Lads, lasses, and haunties with nice asses, this is a public service announcement. Our friends at Manscaped now have beard products and are going even further than ever before with their brand new Weed Whacker 2.0. Go ahead and tell the world, the leaders in below-the-waist grooming are traveling north of your South Pole. Nose hairs are a major turnoff. The new Weed Whacker 2.0 and their new beard line confirms that they have all the best tools for your hygiene toolbox. Time for you to upgrade your game by going to manscaped.com and using code Let's Get Haunted for 20% off plus free shipping. Haunties, meet the Beard Hedger Pro Kit. It is the ultimate package that makes it easier than ever for the beard in your life to craft a signature look. It all starts with the Beard Hedger, the only beard trimmer you will ever need. The Beard Hedger has a titanium-coated T-blade that is tough on hair but smooth on your face, leading to single-stroke efficiency that brings satisfaction one stroke at a time. This waterproof cordless trimmer has a rotary wheel that gives 20 hair-cutting lengths all with one guard, so no more messy drawers full of extra add-ons. Yeah, you heard that right. No more of your drawers full of 20 different guards getting so disorganized and jumbled up, cords tangling in each other, pieces of equipment tangling in each other. And suddenly there's no room in your drawers for anything else. You have a house guest over and you're like, oh, sorry, let me just clear away all 17 of my different uh, beard hedger guards. No longer do you need to worry about this, but also this pro kit is much, much more than just a trimmer. It comes with four dermatologist tested formulations for post trim care. Trust me, whether this gift is for you or for the bearded person in your life, you are both going to love this because the products smell amazing. 
This includes Manscaped's beard shampoo and conditioner, beard oil, and beard balm to moisturize, style, and shimmer facial hair. The Pro Beard Kit also comes with three free gifts, a beard brush, comb, and scissors to ensure that your beard is ready to impress. The brand new Weed Whacker 2.0 offers improved blades and skin-safe technology with a no-tugging guarantee. It's never been so painless to mind your manholes. Now that... Now that upstairs is taken care of, let's talk about the behind the scenes. Wink, wink. Now that your face is looking great, you must try Manscaped's Performance Package 4.0 for the full body grooming experience. And good news, the Performance Package 4.0 now comes with the Weed Whacker 2.0 and all of the other below the waist grooming products Manscaped has come to be known and loved for. You will be delighted to see the hairy person in your life covering all of their bases, if you know what I mean. So get 20% off plus free shipping with our code Let's Get Haunted at Manscaped.com. That's 20% off plus free shipping at Manscaped.com. And don't forget to use our discount code Let's Get Haunted, all caps, all one word, no spaces. Or just check out the link in the show notes. Trust Manscaped for the only right tools for the job. You can thank us later. Another thing I want to add in, uh, when I got to this Airbnb, I was looking around making sure there wasn't old people just living here because the door was unlocked. And so as I'm looking around, I just start opening up all of the closets. And one of the closets legit looks like someone shaved all of their pubes off. No. In it. Like there, there was a dustbin, like the kind that you sweep shit into. And it was just full of, I don't know how else to explain it. Like someone's full bush. Like it was <laughs> disgusting. And so we immediately just called maintenance and we're like, what the fuck is this? And some guy showed up and I was like thinking that it was definitely this guy. But he was like, oh yeah, sorry. Never seen one of these before. He was like, this is a first. But maybe that person that left their pubes behind had taken advantage of our manscaped discount code for 20% mm. off plus free shipping using the code let's get haunted all caps all one word um and maybe that's what happened maybe this is the previous people that were renting this airbnb and maybe the guy was like you know what i really got to get my shit together i'm here in this haunted airbnb i saw a ghost last night it was definitely an old woman with dripping wet hair but before she vanished and sank into the floor beneath me she whispered get your pubes together and that inspired him to buy the performance package 4.0 as one should as Mm -hmm. as all people really should get some of these manscaped products i will also say because they sent us two of these beard packages my boyfriend the other day was complaining because he was like oh my like beard like with old age he's not even old he's younger than me but he was like with my old age like my skin i just feel like gets so much more irritated compared to when i was younger and like my beard is like getting drier like the hairs are getting drier and so um i'm gonna give him one of these beard hedger pro kits because it comes with beard oil and beard balm and I'm gonna lie and I'm gonna say that I bought it independently of this podcast and that I am getting it for him for his birthday because his birthday is in a couple of days so 
Oh, wow. Yeah, so, you know. Doing the least. We love Doing that. the least. But also doing the but most. But doing the most. Because it's the Beard Hedger Pro. Right, but my point is, ladies and gents who listen to this show, haunties who listen to this show, yep. we're not just talking the talk. We're walking the walk because I am getting someone in my life with a beard, this beard kit. Right. So, oh, wow. you know what? What if the advertisement was just for you? Well, shit, it worked, I guess. Wait, no, it didn't. Oh, no, it didn't. They gave it to you for free. That's true. (laughs) What if that was my plan all along? You had to get something for your boyfriend for his birthday? (laughs) It's been like a year in the making, just like a long con. I just want you on that card to write GoPro on it. Like, I want your beard to go pro. I don't know. I, that's what I just want you to write on it. And then he's going to be like, oh, what is this? Is she getting me a GoPro? Like, what's going on? And then it's a beard oh my God. trimming package I see. so this beard can go pro. I see where you're going yeah. with this. How about I just stick it inside of a car and the car has a bow on it and it looks like it's a oh. new car, but really it's my neighbor's car that I broke into to put the beard hedger broken on the seat. And then he comes outside and he's right. like, you got me car and i'm like i got you something better and then i open the car door the alarm is going off all of our neighbors are in the street and he um has the horrifying realization that what i've actually done is get him some beard oil i love that so much me too and speaking of things that we love i would love to give a big shout out to this episode's donors kina in October in Jessica W, Chelsea O, Lindsay L, Cassidy D, Robert S, Kevin T, Samantha P, Tori T, and Corey T. Thank you guys so, so much for your donations. And if you would like to donate to the show, you should head over to patreon.com forward slash let's get haunted. And thank you guys so much for your donation, whether big or small, we really, really appreciate it. It's how we make sure that we make rent every month and software updates, hardware updates, new equipment, new interesting things for you guys to look forward to on the Patreon. And we just really appreciate it. Thank you so much. So with that, Natalia, are you ready to get into this week's episode? I am ready. I'm so ready. I'm just sitting on this couch getting nice and comfy and haunted. Are you buckled the fuck up? I am buckled the fuck up. I'm ready. Let's go. Space, a final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Space, the final frontier. These epic words were spoken by actor William Shatner while playing the role of James Tiberius Kirk, captain of the starship USS Enterprise. Debuting on September 8, 1966, the famous television series of Star Trek followed the exciting voyage of the Enterprise and its motley crew of humans and aliens. A product of the space race, 
This American-created science fiction series enthralled generations of children and adults around the world with its fantastical adventures set in the Milky Way galaxy. At the time of its debut, only a handful of cosmonauts and astronauts had been successfully sent into orbit, and the dream of space travel seemed both unfathomable and yet also limitless. Captain Kirk promised his viewers that he was ready to lead them where no man had gone before. During this time in history, anything seemed possible. 30 feet down, two and a half, picking up some dust. 30 feet, two and a half down, take shadow. Four forward, four forward, drift into the right a little. Down a half, contact right. Okay, engine stop. On July 20th, 1969, the United States made world history when two American astronauts, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, became the first humans to ever set foot on the moon. Upon descending from the lunar module Eagle and touching his boots to the moon's dusty surface, Neil Armstrong famously remarked, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. That's one small step for man, Though Apollo 11 is perhaps the most well-known of the Apollo program missions, it was not the first, nor would it be the last. Astronauts Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee were the three astronauts assigned to the first of these historic missions, Apollo 1. While Apollo 1's sights were set nowhere near the moon, they were part of a critical moment along the space race timeline. A combat veteran of the United States Air Force during the Korean War, Gus Grissom would receive the label of NASA's most controversial astronaut during his time as part of the American space program. His reputation began while orbiting the Earth in the Liberty Bell 7 as the second American to ever fly in space. While his suborbital flight was a success that lasted 15 minutes and 37 seconds, Grissom nearly drowned to death after the Liberty Bell's hatch unexpectedly exploded after splashing down in the Atlantic Ocean. As water poured into the already heavy space capsule, Grissom was forced to scramble out and into the open ocean before his spacecraft could sink with him inside it. Once outside the capsule, Grissom was forced to tread in water while still wearing his spacesuit until a recovery helicopter could pick him up. Further compounding the danger he was in, Grissom's spacesuit began filling with water through an open-air inlet, causing him to nearly drown to death. Oh my god. After several tense minutes of Grissom sinking underneath the surf, he was able to struggle to the surface and be hoisted up into a military helicopter. Meanwhile, a second helicopter was deployed to attempt to retrieve the bobbing Liberty Bell 7 capsule that was steadily filling with water sinking deeper and deeper into rolling ocean waves. While that second helicopter did manage to hook onto the Liberty Bell, the water inside the capsule rendered it too heavy to retrieve, and the decision had to be made to leave the bell behind. And with that, this historic spacecraft, the result of millions of dollars of investment, 
was lost to the ocean. Now, you may be asking yourself, how did this near-death experience earn Gus Grissom the title of most controversial NASA astronaut? Well, following his near-death experience, NASA brought Gus out on a media tour, like they did with all their astronauts during the space race. In true mass media fashion, rather than focusing on his successful orbit and splashdown, journalists rushed to question Grissom about how the hatch on the capsule could have blown. Multiple outlets reported baseless rumors that Grissom must have been at fault. Perhaps he botched his exit by blowing the hatch too soon. In addition, critics argued that Grissom had not followed protocol by immediately evacuating the sinking capsule, and he should have instead remained inside until rescue arrived. Other critics said that while it was understandable to break protocol to remove oneself from a sinking metal casket, it was unforgivable to jump out without making the necessary adjustments to his spacesuit that could have prevented it from filling up with water. Okay, wait, people got mad at him for for when he jumped out to save his own life that he didn't do it right? Yeah. Wh Isn't that crazy? Wh why, though? Like, why are they angered by him jumping out with his suit on? It was going to take way too long to get that shit off. And also, have you seen the inside of a space capsule? There's no space in there. How is he supposed to take that off while he's inside of a space capsule? Totally agree with you. I think it's, I, I, I'm so like surprised. Maybe I shouldn't be, but I was so shocked when I read how much blowback he got from this incident. And we're going to go into some more details. Like, oh, you survived this super traumatic claustrophobic event. Let's make it way worse. Totally. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. And I feel like people in the 60s were just not thinking. I don't know. Like the way I picture the space race is like everyone was so eager and frantic and desperate to beat the Soviets at to put the first man on the moon mm -hmm. to achieve first um, orbit around right. the earth like all these different mile markers were so important to the entire country at the time that anything that seemed like a drawback mm. was met with tons and tons right. of criticism like the journalist is thinking oh how dare you do that because now we're gonna be we have to wait another six months to build another one of these and in their back of their mind somewhere in the darkest crevasse of their brain they're thinking i could have been that astronaut and i wouldn't have fucked it up and now russia's gonna get ahead of us and i do feel like even though maybe i like to think that you know in today's day and age, in the 21st century, we're like a little more understanding of things like this. I also think of, you know, how cruel the media can be towards regular ass people or celebrities or like, you know, a lot of the time context is not considered even in today's day and age, right? Like if somebody films a video of a public freak mm -hmm. out and then posts it online, the comments aren't going to be like, oh, wow, that person seems to be having a really bad day or like, oh, what led mm -hmm. up to this public freak out? Like mm -hmm. the comments are going to be, oh, look at this idiot. Like, look at this loser. Like what a Karen, what a douchebag, you know? Right. And nobody is even looking into context. So while I do think like to think that maybe we're a little better in today's day and age maybe not by much that story is just terrifying though because that is one of my biggest fear man just uh, imagine that space is already so claustrophobic right? and the whole time you're up there you're just like wow did some random person you know 
200 miles away from me or whatever no there's probably like 2000 miles away from me did they like do an equation wrong and so now my brain is gonna like explode inside my head because the pressure in this thing is you know what i mean well and also like, to think you survive space and then you get back to earth and it's like no no no. now you're gonna drown exactly yeah it's almost like final destination type shit yeah. you know now you're gonna suffocate mm -hmm. yeah it's scary it's super scary and the criticism i forgot to mention this earlier so the criticism wasn't necessarily that he should have removed his spacesuit before jumping out it was that he didn't take the necessary protocols to close off these open air valves that mm. were on his suit and if he had closed off those air valves his suit which is filled with um like a certain amount of air would have helped him yeah. stay afloat in the water right. so he was obviously super panicked because he was not expecting this hatch to spontaneously combust essentially mm -hmm. and so once his capsule started filling with water rather than wait inside for the helicopter to come or rather than you know think to close off all these valves and then jump into the ocean where he would be floating he didn't do that he jumped straight into the ocean without closing those valves now mm -hmm. in response to that i would say um that in researching this story the fact that the hatch blew, like, that was never something that he was trained in. So it's not like they even necessarily had a protocol that I could find. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I just think it's really unfair on a lot of different levels. But the aerospace community and the public argued that the mere fact that Gus Grissom jumped out of the craft before securing his spacesuit indicated that he must have been panicked. And if he was panicked, that meant he must have accidentally released the hatch too soon during his state of alarm. To many members of the press and the public, unsubstantiated rumors that placed the blame on the astronaut himself instead of on NASA's engineering flaws was a juicier angle to cover. So the public is thinking, well, you know, it's a lot of mental gymnastics to get there, but I'm going to walk you through why they felt justified in criticizing him. The criticism came from a place of believing that astronauts should be calm, cool, and collected, like the perfect embodiment of the American superiority over the rest of the world. So the mm -hmm. fact that he didn't secure his spacesuit made people think, okay, he was panicked and forgot. And if he was panicked, then he's not a calm, cool, and collected astronaut like we want to be portraying to the rest of the world. So therefore, the hatch must have blown because he freaked out and got claustrophobic and forced it open instead of waiting for the mechanisms to open at the time they were supposed to. Mm. I mean, I I understand. They, but at the same time, it's like you... You're, you're essentially getting upset with someone for having human error. Exactly. You know? Or human emotions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. For being a person. You're upset with someone for being a person and not a robot. Now, right. meanwhile, back at NASA, engineers tried to recreate what mechanism might have failed aboard the Liberty Bell 7, but they were unable to, leaving engineers baffled. For his part, Grissom said that it all happened so fast that he didn't have time to personally inspect the craft before it sank and could therefore not state with any certainty how it was prematurely triggered. He did, however, vehemently deny that he had done anything at all to trigger it himself. Fellow astronauts agreed with him and stated that in order to trigger the hatch to open prematurely, Grissom's hands should have had deep bruises on them, but when they were inspected, his hands were completely unscathed. 
Despite this, he faced so much public criticism that he and his family had to be moved to a safe house in 1966 where the Secret Service could keep watch over him. God. Yeah, tell me your comments while I send you this link. I mean, I don't... These people in the mid-century or whatever, I know because I've bought some of their furniture and I like like their style is fucking weird, right? But imagine that's how they spent their every single day. Maybe you would be like an uptight asshole if you were sitting on an uncomfortable couch every day. I don't know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Maybe you would be uncomfortable if your uh, curtains were like, I don't know, had like paisley on them. I'm not sure. Right. Right. Like all of your lamps are not, you can't see anything in your house. Like they're all just (laughs) low lighting. Exactly. Like you you just constantly think you're like losing your eyesight. So I just sent Natalia a link. And if you want to check out what she's watching, you can go to at Let's Get Haunted because this video will be included in the photo dump for this episode. And I am sending her just a little link to a YouTube video that shows some Liberty Bell footage. Okay, I'm seeing video footage of a helicopter picking up the Liberty Bell out of the ocean. This looks really sketch. Does this trigger your submechanophobia? The when it's bobbing on top of the water, strangely no, but we'll get to something later in the story that definitely triggered my submechanophobia. Oh wow, this is super sketch. Okay, so the astronaut is right next to the or maybe I don't know who that is, but they're way too close to those helicopter blades. That guy that's in the water, is that the astronaut or yep, is that That's Gus Grissom. Okay, so Gus Grissom is right next to the Liberty Bell and there's like a helicopter that's what maybe 15 feet above the water and they're trying to pull out this Liberty Bell. Let's see. It looks like it came all the way out of the water now. Oh, no, but now they dropped it. Yeah. And so the whole time that they're trying to get that Liberty Bell out, Gus Grissom is just in his astronaut suit in open water in the Atlantic Ocean, like freezing water, paddling for his life. Because they didn't realize at first that he hadn't oh, secured. Yeah, they didn't realize at first that he hadn't secured his spacesuit. So they didn't know he was drowning at first. So at first, yeah. all they see is a malfunction on the hatch and water filling up the Liberty Bell. And they're thinking, shit, we don't want to lose this piece of equipment that's super expensive. That is the result of right. millions of dollars of funding, thousands and thousands of hours of like engineering and mathematics and, you know, whatever. So they try to rescue the Liberty Bell first, but then they realize that he's drowning. So they have to drop the Liberty Bell, pick him up. And then by the time they go back to try to pick up the Liberty Bell again, it's already like too heavy to pick up. Yeah, that's crazy. You know what? I don't I do not like helicopters. The blades like decapitate people all the time. Uh, I actually almost did an episode on this, but it was too sad. They filmed like a Twilight movie, not Twilight, the Twilight Zone movie. Mm -hmm. And on set of that movie, the main actor and three child actors were decapitated and killed by a helicopter that went out of control in front of their parents. They were like reenacting a Vietnam War scene and they had a helicopter flying and then the helicopter got too close to some explosives and then just like spiraled out of control and landed on top of the main actor who was carrying uh, carrying children actors and it just decapitated all all of them. Oh my and that, like, god. Nobody on set knew that they had died. They just like saw like there was like smoke and stuff everywhere. So the the director's like, okay, cut, cut, cut. And you see like the stagehands go out into the water and one of them like looks in the water and then just jumps backwards because he just finds like their torsos. And the families are just like 
freaking out i was really fucked up by hearing that and uh, i think about it often so now you have to hear it too well this is an this is an episode that might fuck you up by the end of it because this is just the start of a pretty crazy story so eager to fall back into the public's good graces and to continue to live out his childhood dreams gus grissom worked as hard as ever to be put back into space by nasa According to author Diana Thompson Way in her article entitled Gus Grissom vs. the Media, Victim or Hero, Gus was born with a chip on his shoulder, always ready to work twice as hard as everyone else to achieve success. Standing at just 5 feet 5 inches tall, Gus grew up being picked on for being smaller than the other kids his age. In other words, Gus said that while growing up in the small midwestern town of Mitchell, Indiana in the 1930s, he was always eager to, quote, Prove I could do things as well as the big boys. The eldest of four children to parents Dennis, a railroad worker, and Cecily, a homemaker, Gus was told by his high school administrators that he was too short to participate in the school's sports. Barred from joining any sports teams due to his height, Gus instead focused on delivering newspapers and picking produce in the orchards outside of town. That's really fucked up. 5'5", five, five, and you're too short to play sports? That's sad. My dad told me that happened to him. He's not 5'5", five, five. he's like 5'9", or something. But I remember him telling me that, and he was like, I think it was because our school was just too poor, but they like wouldn't let me play football because they said I was too small. And um, I was just like, that's not true. But now... <laughs> it was a fucked God, up the- time. Yeah. Wow. 5'5", five, five, though, that's like... You you can't play sports because you're five five. Like the best gymnasts in the world are some shorter than that. What are they talking about? Yeah, I th- I truly think so. He grew up so he was born in the I believe 1927, the late 1920s at least. And so he was growing up in the 1930s in a very rural town that had less than three thousand right. people living in it. And I th- that's probably why yeah. they they didn't want to spend the money. They like only had so many people who could play the sports. Yeah, and I also think. When I think of the 1930s, and maybe I'm totally wrong, I I think of, you know, toxic masculinity, gender roles, like, oh, you're short, you're small, you're not manly, you know. So I think that was also part of it. But Mm. secretly, Gus always dreamed of one day becoming a pilot. But being from a poor rural family, the only way he could achieve this dream was by enlisting as an aviation cadet in 1944. Before he could be deployed in World War II, though, Japan surrendered, and he returned home where he married his childhood sweetheart, Betty Moore. Their life together wasn't easy, and for years, both Gus and his wife worked to keep their household afloat. He picked up a litany of odd jobs, including flipping patties in the kitchen of a burger joint and installing doors and windows on school buses. Then, in the early 1950s, Gus got his chance when the Korean War broke out. He enlisted in the U.S. Air Force, where he ended up flying over 100 difficult combat missions in an F-86 Sabre jet with the 334th Fighter Interceptor Squadron. His impressive record in the Air Force earned him the attention of NASA, but not right away. According to NASA's own website, quote, Gus ignored the tradition of naming a jet after one's wife or girlfriend and chose to fly his F-86 Sabre jet with the name Scotty boldly printed on it in honor of his son who had been born the year before. 
Another code of conduct existed on the bus ride, which transported pilots from the barracks to the flight line. Pilots who personally had been shot at by a MIG or MIG were allowed to sit. Those who had not yet experienced a real piece of the action were unworthy of a seat and forced to stand. After only two missions, Gus took a seat on the bus. His first experience of being shot at came as a bit of a surprise. When asked about it, he said, quote, I was flying along up there and it was kind of strange. For a moment, I couldn't figure out what those little red things were that were whizzing by. Then I realized I was being shot at. Grissom usually flew wing position in combat to protect the flanks of other pilots and to keep an eye open for any MIGs or MIGs that might be coming across. He was proud to be able to say, quote, I never did get hit and neither did any of the leaders that I flew wing for. After spending six months in Korea, Gus already had reached his 100th combat mission mark. His request to fly 25 additional missions was denied and he was sent back to the States, having earned both the Air Medal with Cluster and the Distinguished Flying Cross during his tour of duty. After returning home from war, Gus Grissom became a flight instructor for new cadets for a number of years while he also continued perfecting his own flying skills. But the trajectory of his life would forever change when one day out of the blue, he received an official teletype message with the words top secret stamped at the top. Whoa. The message instructed Grissom to appear in civilian clothing at an address in Washington, D.C. and not to tell anyone, not even his family, where he was going. Grissom obeyed the telegram's message and found himself in the running for one of NASA's team of astronauts, all of whom would be vying for a spot in one of the United States missions to beat the USSR in the space race. Now, my point in telling you all of this background is just to say that Gus was scrappy. He was a hardworking man whose dream was to fly. So even though his public reputation was seemingly tarnished by the Liberty Bell 7 sinking, he was eager to earn that trust back from the American people and clear his name. Describing his ordeal in the Atlantic Ocean that day, Gus said, quote, It was especially hard for me as a professional pilot. In all my years of flying, including combat in Korea, this was the first time that my aircraft and I had not come back together. In my entire career as a pilot, Liberty Bell was the first thing I had ever lost. When my flight aboard the Bell capsule was completed, I felt reasonably certain, as the program was planned, that I would not have a second chance at spaceflight. Especially as the press continued hounding him, with some outlets giving him nicknames like Gruff Gus, Gloomy Gus, and The Great Stoneface. Yeah, that stone-faced Gus over there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> 1960s insult. Right. But also, like, yeah. I'm sorry, do you want him to be joyful that he almost drowned in the ocean and is now being blamed in press conferences for the sinking of this million-dollar vessel? Like, he should look gloomy. It would be way too suspicious if he was just like, yeah, like, America is the greatest country in the world, and I'm an astronaut, and this is great. Like, everyone would be like, that's a spy. Like, this is a spy. Or also, right? if he was like, yeah, yay me, I just, you know, the the bell sank, <laughs> like, I, under yeah. my watch, like, congratulations to me. Like, that would be weirder, <laughs> I think, but what? apparently not for 1960s America. He's in a really tough, he's in a tough spot. Absolutely. Afraid he would never be allowed to fly again, Gus Grissom jumped at the opportunity to be considered for a new project NASA had just announced, the Gemini program. 
This program differed from Grissom's past endeavor aboard the Liberty Bell because it would feature a two-man crew this time, and the spacecraft would need a pilot. Once the Gemini spacecraft was completed, astronaut Alan Shepard, who was the first American to ever go into space, was selected as commander for Gemini's first manned flight. Grissom was selected as his backup. As fate would have it, Shepard would begin suffering from an inner ear disorder that caused him to experience nausea and vertigo. With Project Gemini's first mission nearing launch, Shepard was grounded and Grissom was selected as his replacement. On March 23, 1965, Gus Grissom took off with his co-pilot John Young. The mission was successful and the duo's spacecraft splashed down successfully at 2.15 p.m. Ecstatic that nothing had gone awry this time, Grissom and Young were met with a parade at Cape Kennedy and were awarded with NASA's Distinguished Service Medal presented by President Lyndon B. Johnson himself. Gus continued his journey at NASA, training as backup commander for another Gemini mission. At the same time that Gemini was planning its sixth of nine manned missions, the construction of the spacecraft for the first of the Apollo missions was nearly finished. In March of 1966, NASA publicly announced that Gus Grissom had been assigned as commander for the first Apollo Earth orbit mission, along with fellow astronauts Ed White as senior pilot and astronaut Roger Chafee as pilot. The launch of this very first of the Apollo program missions was slated to occur in February of 1967. The crew of three, Gus, Ed, and Roger, gathered at the Cape Kennedy Air Force Station to conduct a mock launch in preparation for the real thing. According to author Ray Boomhauer's book entitled Gus Grissom, The Lost Astronaut, the crew stepped into a crudely assembled simulator that had been hastily put together in a rush. As the simulation commenced, more and more flaws with its design became apparent. According to Wikipedia, problems with the simulator proved extremely annoying to Grissom, who told a reporter that the problems with Apollo 1 came, quote, in bushelfuls, and that he was skeptical of its chances to complete its 14-day mission. That's sketch. Yeah. So wait, the, the, the simulator? The simulator is like simulating that everything's going to go wrong, or the simulator itself is messed up? My understanding of what I read is that before there is a like actual launch the astronauts have to go through several mock launches and those mock right. launches involve you using the actual space capsule or an identical like simulation one um so it's not like you're just in a room with a computer with or like a vr headset like pretending that you're in your capsule like you're actually in the capsule and they go through the entire process of like okay now we're doing this like ground control mm. can you hear me like okay, disconnect this, push this button. And they do everything except launch um, just to like run through it a couple times to make sure they have all the kinks worked out. But what right. Grissom was telling the media, because they would be interviewed um, continuously during this process mm -hmm. because the space race was highly televised, super important. Um, and if you guys are interested in learning some more about the space race from the Soviet side, you can go listen to our episode entitled The Lost cosmonaut conspiracy 
essentially that there were just tons of problems with everything they were doing, whether they were using mm -hmm. a simulator or the actual capsule running through a simulation, practice, everything was just like fucked up. And he wasn't mm -hmm. being quiet about it. He was telling the media like shit is fucked and I'm going to be really surprised if this capsule even makes it back in one piece after 14 days. Like there's no way if we continue on this timeline like the date that we're supposed to be launching, which is a month from now, like I do not foresee all of the kinks being worked out by then. So the engineers who programmed the Apollo training simulator had a difficult time keeping it in sync with the continuous changes being made to the spacecraft. When he was asked by the media what he thought the chances were of the Apollo missions succeeding, Gus replied that he thought they were slim. According to backup astronaut Walter Cunningham, quote, we knew that the spacecraft was, you know, in poor shape relative to what it ought to be. We felt like we could fly it, but let's face it, it just wasn't as good as it should have been for the job of flying the first crewed Apollo mission. Grissom's wife Betty recalled that her husband was so irate after coming home from one of these simulations that he picked a large lemon off the tree in their backyard, stating that he would be tying it to the hunk of junk he was meant to fly to space in. The meaning behind this gesture was clear to all. Gus knew that Apollo 1's spacecraft was a lemon, referring to the module as a bucket full of screws. On January 27, 1967, the crew of the Apollo 1 again gathered at Cape Kennedy for a pre-launch test of the command module on Launch Pad 34. The test was a plugs-out test, which simulated a countdown and launch. Ground crew would release umbilicals, or cables connected to the space vehicle, to ground support equipment on the launch pad to simulate the launch vehicle leaving the launch pad. The 32-minute audio recording of this pre-launch test, which is available to listen to on YouTube, is frustrating to say the least. The crew and test conductors struggle to hear and understand each other over the communication system installed in the craft. Once the umbilical cables were removed during the simulation, the crew was completely reliant on radio to communicate with the ground crew. During this part of the simulation, all communications were temporarily lost as ground crews struggled to get the spacecraft to switch over to radio. Finally, pilot Roger Chaffee gets connected to ground control saying, quote, This is Raj. I'm reading you loud and clear. There's a moment of silence before Roger tries to radio ground crew again, saying, you're awful weak. Say again? Another moment of silent passes before Roger tries again, saying, Negative, we had dead silence up here. A few more tense moments of silence elapse before, finally, the ground crew's audio breaks through to the three astronauts as a crew member reassures them through the transmission, saying, quote, Okay, you're back up now. You should have good communication. This frustrating back and forth between the astronauts inside the module and the crew outside the module struggling to figure out why the communication keeps cutting in and out, at times coming through garbled, and at times not coming through at all. In a moment of pure frustration, Grissom can be heard over the radio, remarking, How are we gonna get to the moon if we can't even talk between three buildings? When nobody from the ground crew responds to him, Fellow astronaut Ed White turns his head towards Grissom and responds, They can't hear a word you're saying. Jesus Christ, Gus answers him back in exasperation. The men had no idea that in less than two minutes after this exchange, 
something horrific would happen. A small fire began smoking directly next to Gus Grissom on the left side of the small cabin the three men were strapped into. The men screamed for help, but the ground crew, still troubleshooting their communication system, could not hear their cries. Oh my god. Astronaut Ed White attempted to forcibly release the hatch from inside the capsule, but the fire, which was now roaring all around them, caused cabin pressure to rise, making opening the hatch an impossible task. Screaming and pounding as best they could on the inside of the capsule, the men yelled for someone to come rescue them, but the ground crew outside remained blissfully unaware. Making matters worse, the crew was pumping pure oxygen into the capsule so that the men could breathe during their mock launch, but the oxygen only fueled and fanned the flames of the small fire until it became an all-consuming inferno. Suddenly, the cabin hole ruptured completely, and the fire overtook the entire interior. The voice of Roger Chaffee is the final transmission recorded inside the spacecraft. His final words, screamed in guttural terror, are, We're burning up. As I mentioned, about 32 minutes of audio are publicly available to listen to on YouTube. The fire starts about 29 minutes and 58 seconds into the recording. I'm going to play that section of the recording now, so if you do not want to hear the final transmission of the three astronauts of Apollo 1, skip ahead about three minutes from now. That makes me want to cry. That's terrible. To hear someone scream for their life like that. Yeah, they were in so much pain. Mm. Mm. That's, yeah, I don't like that at all. In a later report, NASA would say that it took the ground crew approximately five to seven minutes to get the astronauts out, like after the fire had already started. So they yeah. were just in there for, you know, even by conservative accounts, five minutes just burning alive in a pure oxygen environment, you know, like, mm. and they're strapped in. They can't get out. There's nothing they can do. Mm. So by the time the ground crew realized what was happening and were able to get the hatch to the capsule open, all three astronauts were dead, burned alive inside the sealed capsule of Apollo 1. In 1967, this tragedy was NASA's worst disaster to ever occur since its inception. But even in death, Gus Grissom's name continued to be dragged through the mud. Following the fire, United States Congress held a formal inquiry to determine who or what was at fault for the deadly fire. 
According to author Diana Thompson Way, quote, Dr. John McCarthy, Director of Research Engineering and Testing for North American, the aerospace company primarily responsible for building the Apollo capsule, laid the blame literally at Gus's feet. His hypothesis was that the command pilot may have kicked or scuffed a wire lead connected to an air sampling instrument. According to Eric Burgust, author of Murder on Pad 34, Burgess writes, Grissom's own carelessness caused his and his colleagues' deaths. The suggestion immediately recalled another incident during Grissom's first spaceflight in July 1961 when the hatch of his Liberty Bell 7 Mercury spacecraft blew off in the water after landing. The spacecraft sank in the ocean and Grissom nearly drowned. McDonnell Aircraft Company, the spacecraft manufacturer, faced with a charge that something had gone wrong with explosive charges on the hatch, tried to show that Grissom, supposedly in a panic, had blown the hatch himself. Unfair as these two observations obviously were. So essentially, after Gus dies, he doesn't even have like the opportunity to have a nice obituary written about him or have the public remember him and honor him. Instead, the media just starts saying, well, you know Gus Grissom, he lost the Liberty Bell 7 because he panicked and now he probably panicked again and accidentally caused a fire inside of the space capsule that killed all three men. Fuck man though. And it was like books and articles were written basically just saying like Gus Grissom is NASA's like least qualified astronaut like he like trouble followed him wherever he went I mean look I wasn't there and so I have no idea and I didn't live his life so I don't know what his deal was but I mean even if you were gonna be like oh he was panicking because maybe he's fucking panicking because NASA was not doing their jobs like he's in this simulation and he's like how are we supposed to get to the moon if we can't even talk in between three buildings but nobody's being like, oh, well, the engineers should have had that figured out. Like, why couldn't they have figured the communications out before they put the men in that capsule? Right. You know? Yeah. No, it's totally unfair. And I also just think in poor taste, like somebody has lost their life trying to serve yeah. their country in this, you know, endeavor. But apparently it didn't matter to the public or the media. And during his autopsy, it was determined that Grissom suffered burns on 60% of his body and soot was found in his trachea, oral cavity, and nose, meaning that he burned alive. His cause of death was formally noted as, quote-unquote, asphyxia due to inhalation of toxic gases due to fire. The final report published by NASA in 1967 found that the capsule suffered from a myriad of problems, including a chronic leak of corrosive and combustible coolant, deficiencies in the design, manufacture, installation, rework, and quality control of the electrical wiring, including 113 engineering orders that were still outstanding at the time of the mock launch, and a complete absence of design features for fire protection, amongst other critical errors. In 1983, Philip Kaufman wrote and directed an epic historical drama film entitled The Right Stuff, a movie based on the 1979 book of the same name by author Tom Wolfe. According to Wikipedia, the, this film follows the Navy, Marine, and Air Force test pilots who were involved in aeronautical research, as well as the military pilots who were selected to be the first astronauts, a group of which included Gus Grissom. In the film, Gus is portrayed as something of a bumbling, slang-talking fool, whose words can hardly be understood. Author Tom Wolfe wrote the following about Gus in his book, quote, 
He was the goat amongst the astronauts, a hard-drinking, hard-living type who courts the favors of barmaids with goo he promises to carry into space for them. He is also held up to the world as a man who screwed up, who panicked, blew the explosive hatch off his capsule, and allowed it to sink into the ocean floor after re-entry. In reality, Gus was actually quite eloquent. In an interview with CBS just days before his death, Gus showed a small model version of Apollo 1's spacecraft to CBS correspondent Nelson Benton. In that interview, Benton asks Gus, You flew on Mercury, you flew on Gemini, and now you're flying on Apollo. Does the law of averages so far as to the possibility of a catastrophic failure bother you at all, sir? Gus and all the astronauts responded to this line of questioning calmly, and I'd like to play some clips from that interview now. In this next clip, you will hear Gus Grissom responding to a question posed by a CBS News correspondent. You flew on, on Mercury, flew on Gemini, now you're flying on, uh, on Apollo. Does the law of averages, so far as the possibility of a catastrophic failure, bother you at all, sir? No, you sort of have to put that out of your mind. There's always a possibility that uh, you can have a catastrophic failure, of course. This can happen on any fight. It can happen on the, on the last one as well as the first one. So uh, you just plan as best you can to take care of uh, all of these eventualities. And uh, you get a well-trained crew and you go fly. In this next clip, you will hear that same CBS News correspondent asking a question followed by the voice of Gus Grissom's fellow Apollo 1 astronaut, Edward White. The spacecraft you're going to ride on is, a, to a certain extent, untried. You're taking a shakedown cruise. You approach it with any uh, apprehension as compared to the Gemini, which had been flown before? No, I don't think so. I think you have to understand the feeling that a pilot has and that a test pilot has that I, I look forward a great deal to, a, to the first flight. There's a great deal of uh, pride involved in making a first flight. So I think I'm, I'm looking forward to the flight with a great deal of anticipation. In this next clip, you will hear the voice of that same CBS News correspondent asking a question, followed by an answer by rookie Apollo 1 astronaut Roger Chaffee. Is there anything uh, scary about a first sp space flight, even though you've flown many hours in conventional aircraft, jet aircraft? Oh, I don't like to say anything scary about it. Uh, there's a lot of unknowns, of course, and a lot of problems that could develop or might develop, and they'll have to be solved. And that's what we're there for. This is our business, to find out if this thing will work for us. Uh, I don't think it'll be uh, probably a whole lot worse than a guy that's making a first test flight on a new airplane. Now, I've never done that, so I don't know. I think everybody feels a little apprehensive uh, when they count down. I don't see how you could help but be a little bit excited. But I don't think anybody is, uh, you know, I, I don't like to use the word scary. I, I definitely think you're apprehensive and you're considering what's involved there. You're thinking about it. But you know how to handle it and take care of it and do the job. I don't think that they sound bumbling or any of that. No, and they're also, they're very well-spoken, and they're also also young. I know. You know, like, know. they had their it's, whole lives ahead of them. 
Yeah, yeah. It says, uh, one of the comments here says, rip to the crew of Apollo 1. And it says Virgil was, uh, Gus Grissom was 40. Ed White was 36. And Roger B. Chafee was 31. Yeah, super, super young. And in another often quoted moment from Gus's life, which occurred during a March 1965 interview after he successfully returned from his Gemini mission, he said, quote, If we die, we want people to accept it. We are in a risky business, and we hope that if anything happens to us, it will not delay the program. The conquest of space is worth the risk of life. So from everything that I have seen about him, I like I really don't understand why he was given so much grief in the media and from the public to the point where the Secret Service had to like keep watch over his house. It seems crazy to me because in all of the interviews that I watched, like he's candid, you know, he's saying like, hey, there's problems, there's errors, whatever. But he, or there's flaws in the design, whatever. But he's he also seems really altruistic. And like, it's just interesting how he was portrayed in the movie The Right Stuff, because that movie won a lot of Oscars. And I feel like that is a lot of the public perception around Gus is based on that movie. I I feel like these people from that time period are I mean, like I was listening to that interviewer and he's asking these really pointed questions at them. And I'm like, that's so fucking weird. Why would you ask someone something dark like that? You know, but then in my mind, I'm thinking about it. and I'm like, this is what was on the public's mind. Like these, these guys are like in a primitive spacecraft. Like everyone knew that shit goes wrong with this stuff all the time. The likelihood that you're going to die at this time period as an astronaut not doing something quote-unquote heroic like flying around the moon and planting a flag on some new you know place in space uh is really high it's more like you're probably gonna die in a test a test situation like that yeah you're gonna burn to death you're going to there's gonna be a, a faulty wire and you get lost in space something like that you know and it's not gonna be a quick death it's gonna be a terrible panic inducing scary death to the average person right now to the the pilot to an, an astronaut yeah like i think that their brain works differently i don't think they're going into this thinking oh my god this is so scary i'm claustrophobic and i what if something goes wrong and i can't do this and da, 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 da. they're they're like not thinking about that at all they're like oh this is awesome i've waited my whole life to put this suit on yeah i got to walk up these steps today that all of my heroes have done you know what i mean like they're not thinking about that yeah yeah and in and to your point in episode seven the phantom cosmonaut conspiracy we learned that there were soviet cosmonauts that you know crashed to the earth and burned up on re-entry right so there were lots and lots of deaths associated with the space race in general but i had never personally heard the story of gus grissom and you know, despite the fact that, in my opinion, his interviews are really eloquent and his statements are all very, like, selfless, rumors persisted well after his death, with many people considering him to be careless and unpredictable. 
Many still believed that Gus and Gus alone was the sole person responsible for the sinking of the Liberty Bell 7, and therefore he was most likely the cause of the fire inside the Apollo 1 capsule. In 1978, the Cosmosphere International Space Museum began looking into recovering the Liberty Bell 7 from the floor of the Atlantic Ocean. Located more than 16,000 feet below sea level, the Liberty was resting at a deeper depth than even the Titanic. On top of this, while the general area of the sinking was known, the exact coordinates of the Liberty had yet to be pinpointed. The necessary technologies to retrieve such a large object from such extreme depths did not yet exist in the 1970s, so the Cosmosphere's efforts to recover the spacecraft were temporarily put on hold. According to its own website, Cosmo.org, by 1986 the organization had joined forces with deep-sea salvage expert Kurt Newport. Enlisting the help of hundreds of engineers, scientists, historians, and technicians, the location of Liberty Bell 7 was finally determined. The team of experts studied ship logs and conducted interviews with people involved in the flight and recovery process to determine the location of the spacecraft. They looked at weather and tide data and did computer studies to determine how the spacecraft sank and where it might have been. They studied the unique metals of the mercury capsule to calculate the possible corrosion occurring in salt water at 16,000 feet. The variables were numerous, but searchers were confident that they had narrowed the search area down to approximately one mile in diameter, and that it was only a matter of time when they would find the spacecraft. Because of the expense of the project and the fact that the exact location of it was still unknown, the project was shelved until 1999 when the Discovery Channel underwrote a large-scale expedition dedicated to finding and recovering the Liberty Bell 7. That's dope. Hell yeah, the Discovery, Discovery Channel. Channel. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, isn't that crazy though? Like, well, we'll talk about it in a little bit, but it's crazy that it took a TV channel to recover this spacecraft right. like nasa can't recover it and the government the doesn't want Channel. to yeah. yeah on that's crazy on april 16th 1999 38 years after the liberty bell sank and 32 years after gus grissom's death the discovery channel sent a remote operated vehicle or rov down to one of 18 targets they had identified as being the possible final resting place of the liberty bell Miraculously, they were successful in this very first try, as the lights of their mm. ROV lit up the bell-shaped, rusted metal exterior of the spacecraft, which was now partially covered in barnacles. As the crew remotely operating the ROV cheered upon their discovery, rough sea conditions suddenly knocked the ROV sideways, severing the tether between the vehicle and its controllers. The ROV floated down to the bottom of the ocean, just like the Liberty Bell, and the expedition was halted. On July 1, 1999, a new ROV built specifically to retrieve the spacecraft was launched in a new attempt. Finally, the expedition was successful and the spacecraft was recovered from the ocean floor and returned to Port Canaveral on July 21, 1999, exactly 38 years after its flight into space. The drama of the expedition was captured in the two-hour Discovery Channel documentary, In Search of Liberty Bell 7. And Natalia, I'm going to show you a clip from that documentary now, which is available on YouTube. After days of confusion and doubt. Okay, it's coming up on your port side. 10 degrees to the port. Repeated analysis. 
and recalculation of sonar and navigation data. Another five degrees port, still 50 feet out. Now, at last, the coordinates for the elusive Target 71 begin to line up with video from the bottom. 080, dead ahead. Dead ahead. Liberty Bell 7. You know what that reminds me of? It just reminds me of that scene in the Titanic where everyone is like gathered around one of those little screens and they're sending that submarine thing down and to get the Titanic. It's like ex- literally exactly the same. Totally. Except this is real. Exactly. There's just a bunch of like researcher looking type people in front of a screen and they're all like, there it is. And then it's, sh- you know, showing the, the rusted Liberty Bell coming into vision yeah it looks creepy does that give you some mechanophobia yeah so that's what i wanted to tell you at the beginning of the episode when you asked me but i didn't want to give it away um but yeah that gives me sub mechanophobia um but watching it bob up and down didn't for some reason i don't know why So after six months of meticulous restoration of the Liberty Bell, which was filmed via a live webcam broadcasted around the world, every single piece of the craft, approximately 25,000 individual parts, were completely disassembled, cleaned, and reassembled. Wow. I know. Crazy. I cannot imagine that kind of attention to detail and dedication. This in-depth study of the spacecraft yielded results that finally, once and for all, cleared Gus Grissom's name. Inspection of all the craft's pieces determined conclusively, for the first time ever, that the bolts holding the hatch in place had spontaneously exploded upon splashdown, propelling the hatch outward. This proved that Gus hadn't panicked and triggered the door himself. But the culprit behind Grissom's near-death experience in the Atlantic Ocean was due to a simple but crucial engineering design flaw. This discovery, made by an impartial third-party team of restoration and aeronautical experts, caused the public to wonder, why hadn't NASA ever tried to recover its lost capsule? Could it be that they preferred to let the public place the blame on Gus? Were they secretly hoping no one would ever recover the craft to inspect it for themselves and discover the truth? And was there something more nefarious behind the slander of Gus Grissom and his untimely death? Whoa. What, you think NASA killed Gus Grissom on purpose? Well, I'm about to tell you the conspiracy side of this episode. What the fuck? Okay, tell me. In an article for Gaia.com, Gaia staff writes the following in its article entitled The Apollo 1 Conspiracy. Quote, NASA claimed that the fire burned toxic chemicals, causing the astronauts to die from asphyxiation within a minute. Though a claim from someone within the private contractor North American Aviation said that the crew struggled to open the hatch for the full five minutes. NAA had been the primary contractor in building the module and was put under intense scrutiny when the congressional investigation exposed documented evidence of failings and inadequacies in the company's development process. There was one safety inspector in particular who brought to light the technical issues surrounding the Apollo 1 mission, whose story is particularly conspicuous in the possibility of a larger cover-up. Thomas Ronald Barron was a quality control and safety inspector for NAA, who has been highly critical of NASA and its protocol during the Apollo project. 
Barron put out a 55-page report detailing the shortcomings and disarray that the program was in. Barron's report was brushed off as being overly critical and blown out of proportion, with few of his claims having any real credibility. At one point, he testified before Congress, claiming that, under current circumstances at NASA, we would never make it to the moon. Though, many did not pay attention to Barron and believed that he was potentially being used as a pawn by Senator Walter Mondale, who had a campaign to expose and dismantle NASA for its quote-unquote wasteful spending. Barron was ultimately fired by the NAA for leaking his report to the press. While his company denied the majority of his criticisms, years later it came out that top-level officials verified the credibility of at least half of his claims. A few weeks later, the Apollo disaster occurred, and Barron began working on turning his 55-page report into a 500-page report, exposing NASA and NAA for the failures that led to the tragedy. Oddly enough, within a week, Barron and his family were killed when their car was struck by a train. The cause of death was ruled accidental and no autopsy was ever performed. How do you accidentally get struck by a train? That's the question. So the train was found to have been traveling at 40 miles per hour in reverse. Barron, then 29 years old, and his 25-year-old wife and four-year-old daughter were thrown from the car. The official verdict put forth by NASA was that Barron likely tried to race a train to beat it before it crossed the tracks with his wife and stepdaughter in the car. If this sounds absurd, that's because it is. A whistleblower who testified before Congress against NASA and a large private aerospace contractor just happened to die because he didn't have the patience to wait for a train to cross? Unsurprisingly, the official ruling said that Barron was mentally unstable and that therefore there was even a possibility that he had attempted suicide. A common cover-up tactic and attempt to explain what would otherwise look like a blatant murder. Barron's 500-page report was subsequently destroyed before it could ever be published. Although skeptics attempt to debunk this theory by saying that Barron died after he had already testified, not before, and if NASA and or the U.S. government really wanted to silence him, shouldn't they have killed him before his testimony was given? But believers fire back at skeptics by pointing out that his death could have been a warning to other whistleblowers who were also considering testifying. In a 1986 article for the Orlando Sentinel, reporters Jim Luzner and Dan Tracy obtained transcripts and tape recordings through the Freedom of Information Act. These recordings were of conversations supposedly recorded during the Challenger space shuttle disaster. In that space tragedy, the entire crew aboard the Challenger were killed when their space shuttle exploded during launch. While this is a completely separate disaster that merits its own in-depth episode someday, the tapes obtained by reporters Luzner and Tracy supposedly revealed that the Apollo 1 fire and Barron's untimely death by train was still fresh in everyone's minds, with engineers supposedly talking to each other about how they didn't want to end up like Barron. That article, which has since oh been God. pulled from the Orlando Sentinel's website, alleges that in the tapes, the workers discussed being suspicious of Barron's death. 
So if you do a keyword search in Google for this news article, you can actually see a preview of the article with the date that it was published to the Orlando Sentinel. But then if you click on that link, the link is broken. And so for a while I was thinking, oh, I'm just gonna have to trust these third party sources that are paraphrasing what was said in the original article. And I was kind of bummed about that. But then I remembered, okay, you know what? I'm gonna do a keyword search in newspapers.com. Now a keyword search in newspapers.com also did not give me that article, but when I went in and manually flipped through all the pages of the 19, February 1986 newspaper for the Orlando Sentinel, I was able to find the full article. And so I'm gonna go ahead and include a screenshot of that article in the photo dump for this episode. If you would like to read it for yourself, you can go to at Let's Get Haunted on Instagram. Otherwise, I am going to read just a couple of excerpts from that article now. Quote, The shuttle technician sat in his living room and shook his head. His hands trembled. No, he said. He couldn't talk about the Challenger or why it blew up in the skies over the Kennedy Space Center. His bosses had told him the subject was off limits to reporters and other outsiders. He did not want to lose his job. A NASA engineer standing at the end of his driveway in the dark of night said he wanted to talk, but couldn't. He feared not only for his job, but maybe even for his life. There was a whistleblower against NASA in the 1960s, he said. The man caused a lot of trouble, made a lot of noise. There was only one problem. He died mysteriously, late at night. His car was crushed by a train. Officials discounted foul play, but many veteran KSC workers remain uneasy over the circumstances of the accident. Quote, it takes a certain personality to be a whistleblower, the engineer said, and I'm just not the type. I have a wife, kids, a home. Dozens of KSC workers contacted by the Orlando Sentinel since Challenger exploded January 28th said they have been instructed by NASA or the contractors who employ them not to talk to the media. One technician said he had been told not to talk business with co-workers in bars. Reporters may be there, he was told, listening for anything related to the Challenger accident or KSC. Quote, There is paranoia dating back to the 204 incident, said one KSC veteran, referring to the flash fire in the Apollo 1 capsule that claimed the lives of three astronauts in 1967. Now, nearly 19 years later, seven more astronauts are dead, and NASA is releasing little information about the accident. But speculation and news leaks are rampant. The loose talk has revived memories in some KSC circles about the dead man known as Byron. Things he talked about are called the Byron Report. The story has been passed from worker to worker for years. KSC employees say they tell it whenever a disgruntled worker threatens to go public with charges against the space program. Actually, the man's name was Tom Barron, an aerospace engineer who lived in Titusville with his wife and two children. He was a vocal critic of the Apollo program and testified on the subject before a U.S. House subcommittee in April of 1967. On April 29th, six days after submitting a 500-page file to the subcommittee, Barron, his wife Marlene, and daughter Penny were killed when the car he was driving was struck by a Florida East Coast railway train north of Titusville. The auto was dragged 30 feet by the train before falling off the tracks and rolling end over end another 30 feet into a nearby ditch. 
Brevard County Sheriff Inspector George Wilson, 49, investigated the tragedy and said he found no evidence of foul play. He said that the FBI checked into the case after hearing rumors that Barron was murdered. Quote, Barron just pulled in front of the train and boom, they're not going to take out a whole family that way, he said. But many are not satisfied with official explanations. They say the underlying message is obvious. Quote, the government is going to get rid of anybody who makes too much trouble, the technician said. Former NASA engineer Bill McInnes said, quote, nobody will talk under the present environment. And that is the end of the newspaper clipping excerpt that I chose to read. How scary. This is giving me the heebie-jeebies because now it makes so much sense why the communication didn't work in that capsule before those three men died. If it was oh, a blatant good point fire that was set, yeah, then what better way to make it all go smoothly than to cut communication with the ground crew? Because the ground crew is not going to be in on it. It's going to be, you know, some creepy little Dracula man yeah. coming in the night. You know, I don't know how they how you mi- have a murder planned, but it's definitely you don't tell everyone about it. Right. Well, and the contractor that was hired by NASA to complete this spacecraft was also really upset with Gus Grissom. Like that is a fact that is documented because he was telling the press like we talked about, like there's no way this hunk of junk, this, um, you know, bag of bolts and screws is going to make it up into space. He took he took a lemon off of his tree and very publicly tied it around the space simulator, like to denote like, hey, this thing is a fucking lemon. It's going to explode. It's like a pinto car that gets recalled. Like, it's not good. Um, it's not going to get us to the moon. And he knew that, but was still getting inside of these capsules. And you can even hear in the audio clip that I played earlier that I had you listen to, you can hear him like he's frustrated. All the astronauts are frustrated. He says, Jesus Christ, like, why can't they hear me? How are we going to get to the moon if, if, you know, we can't even communicate between three buildings? And when the fire broke out, a lot of people thought, well, how convenient, because NAA was the same contractor that had built the Liberty Bell 7 and they were pissed because he was trying to clear his name to the public being like no um, it wasn't me it was like a faulty system that was installed an engineering mistake a design flaw and while they didn't outright like come out and say no it was Gus's fault they also didn't come out and really defend him from the public perception and media stories that were running at the time. And so a lot of people say like, well, how convenient that, you know, they never recovered this vessel from the ocean. They never even made any attempts to figure out where it was. Um, Mm -hmm. They just let it sit there until the Discovery Channel one day was like, well, we'll fucking get it. Like, why is this still on the ocean floor? Whoever was like in charge of this conspiracy at NASA when they found out that Discovery Channel had like pulled this out, they were probably like, that's really cool. Yeah. Well, wow. we're so happy about it. Oh, Discovery Channel. That's so great. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is the point in the... There's really not a lot of evidence for this conspiracy theory. And I... Like, other than what I've already said. But I'm going to explain a little bit more that I found online. Um, but I actually stumbled upon the Apollo 1 conspiracy while researching a different conspiracy that's tangentially related. So I think in my next episode, I might cover that one. I, I know for sure during this year, to. I'll this cover is it. great. Oh, thank you. Are you interested? Is talking. this boring? I'm super interested. Okay, no, not at all. I don't think, I don't think 
you're saying there's not a lot of evidence. I think there is a lot of evidence. We have clear motive for this. Well, and at very crime. at the very least, like these are a lot of really weighty questions. You know, it's not just like you know when people say like, oh. There's a conspiracy that President Trump's actually a reptile in a, a skin suit. Like, okay, like mm-hmm. that's a fun thing. Like, I'm on board because that's fun. Yeah. But like, mm-hmm. how? There's no evidence, right? But for this one, there there's really a lot of weight behind these claims. So even if they can't ultimately be proven, I think they're interesting enough to talk about and explore. And during my research, I also found a thread on a discussion board about Apollo 1 posted by a user going by the name Gary Plus 5. And while I'm obviously unable to verify the veracity of Gary Plus 5's statements because I have no idea who he is, I thought I would include it. Um, I thought I would include it along in this in the conspiracy mm-hmm. section of this episode because I really think Gary sort of embodies the questions that the modern public has now about this mm-hmm. incident looking back. So Gary writes, I am currently investigating the death of North American Aviation Safety Inspector Thomas Ronald Barron, who died in a car-slash-train accident shortly after or before the congressional hearing investigating the Apollo 204 fire, which is the name that was given to the Apollo 1 mission fire. Some websites maintain that the accident was officially ruled a suicide, but I can find no autopsy or coroner's report. Does anyone know the source of this official ruling? Does anyone have any leads regarding Barron that I can look into? A user responded asking Gary what he has on the subject so far, and Gary responded a day later saying, quote, The Brevard County Medical Examiner's Office has no record of an autopsy or coroner's report, and neither does the county, state, or hospital where the death certificate was signed and the doctor who signed the death certificate does not even remember the deceased. I have the death certificate and accident report, neither of which mentions suicide, which is why I'm trying to figure out why some websites say that the accident was ruled a suicide. I'm not saying that he was intentionally killed, but conspiracy, theori- but conspiracy theorists could definitely make a case for the following reason. Barron's original 58-page report, which led to his being called by the Congressional Committee investigating Apollo 204, was a lot of nothing. Barron had no first-hand knowledge about the fire. However, it did bring him to the attention of the public, i.e. other employees involved in the space program, including those much closer to the Apollo 204 program, and subsequent investigation into the tragedy. The 500-page report may, and I emphasize the word may, have had some damning info for the simple reason that a 58-page report was based almost exclusively on Barron's observations and experiences, whereas the later report was much more than that. It included information anonymously supplied to him by his workers at the Cape. His co-worker Al Holmberg testified to that effect that Barron was compiling info based on phone calls from workers who supposedly leaked info to him but were too afraid to speak out themselves. Some might say that Barron remained a threat to North American Aviation's contract, and some might also say that the future of the space program itself resided in his hands. I'm keeping an open mind to all possibilities as I dig further. What happened to the 500-page report? So some people say that when he died, the report was just lost. Other people say, no, he sent it to Congress, but they claimed that they never read it and claimed that they lost it. 
other people say, uh, oh no, NASA saw the 500 page report and they determined that it was like a bunch of hoopla and lies and rumors and gossip. But of course they would. Yeah, exactly. So we don't really know. We like don't really know okay. what those 500 pages contain. But one of his co-workers did come forward years later and say, I knew he was working on it. And I knew that he was like taking a lot of phone calls and writing down anonymous mm. complaints that he had supposedly received, like anonymous information given to him by people close to the Apollo 1 fire. I believe this. I believe it with all my heart right now, just because... I, I know that the government at that time, especially during this Cold War, like they were taking out pe just normal fucking people that they were like, you're a fucking spy, fuck you. And people were just freaking out and unhinged and like pushing bitches out of windows and stuff. Yes, you know? absolutely. Yeah, it was crazy. It was a crazy time. Paranoia was at an all time high. And I'm sure there was higher ups who were like, hey, if you fuck up your job, you're gonna get marked next you know totally yeah and i think that's why this episode in my opinion is a nice compliment to the phantom cosmonaut conspiracy episode because in that episode we learned about tons of cover-ups that russia was involved in at the time they were literally airbrushing pictures of people astronauts out of, out of historical photos because they didn't want people right. to know that those astronauts had died right yeah you know I so that. i mean definitely i think the u.s would be involved in something similar because they're trying to keep up with the propaganda that the soviets are pushing out by pushing out their own propaganda so i just sent you a newspaper article that i would like you to read the article is entitled moonship critic dies in car slash train crash oh, with wife daughter okay it says a former apollo quality control inspector who told congressional investigation who told congressional investigators of numerous shortcomings in america's moonship program has been killed with his wife and stepdaughter in a car train collision Thomas R. Barron, 29, died when his car was struck by a Florida East Coast Railway switch engine at a road crossing north of here Friday night, a week after he testified for more than an hour before a House committee inquiring into the Apollo 1 tragedy. Barron, discharged by North American Aviation before January before the January 27th fire that killed three astronauts, accused the company of poor management and sloppy workmanship. North American builds the Apollo spacecraft. He wrote a 55-page report before the accident occurred, listing his charges, and after the moonship disaster, he expanded the document to more than 500 pages. Both were submitted to the House Space Subcommittee investigating the spacecraft fire. Barron testified before the committee at a special session at the nearby Kennedy Space Center for more than an hour on April 21st. He fielded numerous critical questions and even ridicule. At the close of the hearing, Chairman Alan E. Teague of the committee told Barron that the Apollo 1 Board of Review and North American had found at least some of the charges in his report were true. Quote, it has caused North American to really search its procedures, end quote, Teague said. Barron had been an Barron had been unemployed since leaving North American. He and his family lived in a trailer home near here in Mims. The Florida Highway Patrol reported that the accident occurred at a rail crossing, marked by the standard X-shaped warning sign. Barron's car had proceeded parallel to the tracks and then turned to cross the railroad. Troopers estimated that the switch engine was traveling about 40 miles per hour and Barron's car about 30 miles per hour when the collision occurred. Barron's car was dragged about 30 feet and then flipped end over into a ditch. 
He, his wife, and his stepdaughter were thrown from the car and killed. A second stepdaughter remained in the car and survived. She was in the she was in serious condition at a nearby hospital. Oh my god, that that one daughter that survived. Yeah, I know it's crazy. How fucking awful! Wow, horrible. Who? Why? Well, what does she say about it? I couldn't find anything really. Um, like from Maybe her. Maybe she's hiding. Well, I can only assume that like. She was six years old. The surviving member of the family mm-hmm. was only six years old when this crash occurred that killed her entire family. And we already know that trauma can cause some pretty crazy things to happen in the brain, including um, memory erasure, like complete erasure of you know trauma that has happened in the past. So I, especially for someone who in this you know was born in the '60s and lived through her entire family dying. I think a lot of people in that time frame never really wanted to give interviews. So I'm not saying she didn't do an interview. I'm just saying I haven't been able to find one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't feel right about like searching her up and trying to talk to her because I just felt so bad about this entire like this story mm-hmm. is fucking horrifying. Like yeah. whether or not I don't know why that car would be doing that that just seems really weird and they said that the train was going backwards the train was oh he was it gets crazier he was racing it backwards it makes no sense it sounds like the car was planted or for whatever reason i don't know or someone else was driving it i don't know well whatever the truth is rumors of a hit job persist still today in a more recent article from 2021 entitled the loneliest man published for Lake and Sumter style magazine, author Gary Corsair elaborates on some of the finer points of this conspiracy theory. His article is divided into a couple of sections that I'm going to read for you now. The first section says, who was Thomas Barron and what did he know? Answer, one reporter called Barron strange. Another remembered the 28 year old as intense. A coworker portrayed Barron as way out there. His ex-wife said that he was extremely intelligent. They were all correct. Barron was many things, but above all, he was a perfectionist. The son of a Pennsylvania locksmith found his niche working on the Hound Dog Missile Program at Eglin Air Force Base in the Florida Panhandle, then parlayed his Air Force training into a job as a safety inspector at North American Aviation. Barron loved his job, even though he worked long, pressure-filled hours as NAA scrambled to finish the Apollo 1 space capsule. Next section. Curious facts lend credence to a foul play scenario. The train Barron struck had been dispatched from a NASA facility. Barron's 500-page report has never been seen since his demise. Barron told a family member that he had been threatened and followed by either NASA, NAA, or federal agents. Someone entered and ransacked Barron's home prior to the crash. One of Barron's neighbors saw two men in dark suits searching Barron's trailer the night before he died. All three victims were found with skull fractures. Were those fatal injuries consistent with a car driven at 30 miles per hour, clipping a train reversing at 40 miles an hour? Next section, why did Barron die? 
Barron attempted to drive his beloved 1959 Volvo across railroad tracks at a crossing seven-tenths of a mile from the trailer he rented outside Mims, Florida. The Volvo was estimated to be traveling at 30 miles per hour when it suddenly made a 90-degree turn into the crossing, struck the rear coupler of a reversing train consisting of only an engine and a gondola car, estimated to be moving at 40 to 45 miles per hour. The train pushed Barron's car 30 feet off the tracks, and the Volvo tumbled end over end, ejecting, all, ejecting three of the four occupants and landing on top of Barron. The train conductor said he blew his whistle before impact. Alleged witness Linda Sue Mullins, who was traveling in the opposite direction of Barron, had passed him moments before the crash. She said she honked her horn to warn the driver of the Volvo. Another witness, a man, refused to make a statement to the investigating Florida Highway Patrol troopers. The FHP accident report states that the crash was an accident, but some things don't add up. For one, why would he try to beat a train that was only one car long? Barron was cautious and extremely safety conscious. He was no daredevil, and he would never have risked the lives of his wife and his other two children. NASA critic and author Bill Casing proposed a more sinister scenario. I believe that Thomas Ronald Barron was murdered because he had a truth to tell about the Apollo project, Casing stated. Was Barron silenced because he wouldn't stop talking about the shortcomings in the space program? If so, how did his murderers arrange the car-slash-train accident? And what about the lone eyewitness, Linda Sue Mullins? Little is known about her except for the fact that she lived in a home owned by North American Aviation, Barron's former employer. Serious? Some have suggested that Barron committed suicide. If so, would he have taken his family with him? The fact that Barron hoped to turn his 500-page report into a book also suggests that he wanted to live. Did Thomas Ronald Barron possess proof that negligence led to the death of three astronauts? What became of his 500-page report? Was he silenced because he knew too much? The answers to those questions remain as elusive today as they did 54 years ago. Gaia.com's article on the matter, which we read from earlier, goes into the aftermath of the Apollo 1 and the opinions of Gus Grissom's own family on what happened to him. Quote, In 1999, the charred remains of the test module that trapped Grissom and his two colleagues was opened up for his family to see. Scott, Gus's son, noticed a fabricated metal plate behind a switch on one of the instrumentation panels. He believed that this switch was used to deliberately create a spark that would have ignited the cabin, killing Grissom and the other astronauts. This story was supposedly backed by an aerospace contractor who worked for McDonnell Douglas, a company that later merged with Boeing. Scott Grissom believed that NASA didn't want his father to be the first man on the moon after his botched Liberty Bell 7 landing. He said he believed that NASA might not have trusted him and was likely upset with Grissom's outspoken frustration with the technical difficulties in the Apollo program. But Scott Grissom said that he's not exactly sure why NASA or the government would want to prevent his father from continuing on in the program to the extent that they would sabotage him. But he does believe wholeheartedly that his father's death was an intentional murder. And Gus Grissom's wife, Betty, also agrees with her son saying that she, too, believes her husband was murdered. In an article for Courier and Press entitled Gus Grissom, Life and Legacy of the Forgotten Hoosier Astronaut, 
Author Zach Evans writes of an interaction between Gus and his wife. Quote, if there is ever a serious accident in the program, it's probably going to be me. In the end, Grissom's eerie, prophetic statement to his wife was right. The first serious accident in the space program did involve him. And that is the story of the Apollo 1 conspiracy. Wow, I mean, that doesn't even seem like a story. That's just like facts. Like, I, one, I, I don't think there's any doubt in my mind that this was an inside job. Like, especially in the time setting that it was. And then we lay out the facts, like, oh, that uh, Baron goes, his whole family got murdered, essentially, or had a quote-unquote accidental death, and the one witness to it was just like, well, I tried to honk at him, he wasn't listening to me. And then her house is paid for by North American. And the train was a NASA train that was leaving a NASA facility. That was one car long. Yes, it was one car long. And Baron's neighbor said the night of his murder or death, whatever you believe. There was people in suits looking around. Yep. Two men, like the men in black, two men in black suits Mm -hmm. walking around, poking around inside and outside Baron's trailer. (sighs) That is terrifying. So, I mean, there's a lot of layers, right? Because this conspiracy involves two cover-ups, not just one. It involves mm-hmm. the cover-up of the death. Like the Apollo one. Well, actually, you know what? I take that back. It involves three conspiracies. Yeah. The, co- the Liberty Bell. The Liberty Bell 7. The cover-up of the Liberty Bell 7's um, malfunction on its hatch. The cover-up of the death of Baron and his entire family, except for his six-year-old stepdaughter. And the death of three astronauts that were inside the Apollo 1 when it spontaneously combusted during a time where coincidentally communication was down. It's just it's just such a crazy crazy conspiracy and there's there's more layers to it because I was reading an article where there were a ton of quotes from Grissom's wife and she said that to add insult to injury NASA like stole certain artifacts that belonged to her like they wouldn't she had um i guess she had one of her husband's space suits that he wore during the gemini program and then she donated it to a museum and when that museum went under she was supposed to like retreat like be able to take back all the artifacts mm-hmm. she had loaned but then nasa like swooped in and was like no these are all stolen they're ours and took them and so like she couldn't even she wasn't even allowed to have them back. Because to look at them. Maybe. That spacesuit supposedly was from the Gemini program, which he did return successfully from. But yeah, it's just like a lot of weird things, layers upon layers. And she did sue NASA after her husband died, obviously, as did the other families mm-hmm. that were involved who lost their loved ones. Um, and she asked for, I want to say like... 10 million dollars but this was years 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 after the accident because for the first couple of years she truly believed it was an accident and then as more and more information started coming out and people started dying that were related to the program she was like wait a minute like i am hearing this is all alleged right like i don't have any proof of this but from what i was reading people were telling her anonymously like former co-workers were telling her like we think he was murdered wow. so she ended up suing saying that if it wasn't murder, then at the very least they knew that there was so much wrong with the capsule that they never should have allowed him to be inside of it. Um, Mm -hmm. 
And so that was what the lawsuit was based on. She sued for $10 million. I read that she only ended up getting a little over $300,000. Um, now, obviously, the conversion rate, you know, from the time that she sued versus today, I'm sure that's like a shit ton of money in today's money. But for a loss of life, I don't know that you can really put a price on that, especially for something so brutal and something so egregious where it was just so obvious that there were so many design flaws. Yeah, I don't know. I'm like... I'm like trying not to fall off of the edge of the earth lately with all this UFO shit, but stuff like this makes you wonder, like we know from a history of just how our fucking country was created, we're born on treason and conspiracy. Come on guys. And so like when all this crazy shit is happening right now with all of this UFOs and uh, proxy wars and all this stuff, like I am just trying so hard to not get involved. Because you can really fuck yourself up wondering how much the government is lying to us. Like, what's propaganda? What's a PSYOP? What's real? What's not? So, I mean, that's in present day. Now, when we look backwards, we're totally safe. We can be like, oh, yeah, in the 60s, everyone was weird. They sat on stupid couches <laughs> and they listened to records that were like all poppy and fizzy. And they just were drunk all the time. And they couldn't even see shit because they didn't have LASIK. So, of course, they didn't know what the fuck was going on. You know what I mean? Right. But but then, you know, we take that and we translate that into the time we're in today. Like, the CIA still fucking there. I'm sure you have some someone's grandchild who's running the thing and they're you know what i'm saying like it's it's all it's like nepotism in every industry right every single industry is nepotism so what makes us think that there's not someone who's related to this incident cover-up that's still in charge somewhere in the system that's still covering shit up today I agree with you. It's very easy to fall off like the conspiracy face of the earth and <laughs> yeah. just like face plant into like, are we in a simulation? Is nothing real? Does the right. government know more than they're saying to us? And the answer uh, to all might be yes. It also might be yeah. no. I don't know. Um, right. But yeah, it's just like, I will also say too that a lot of people who think Baron committed suicide or that it was like a tragic accident they say that a lot of his nervous behavior leading up to the event where he's saying people are following me and you know the, they're out to get me a lot of that might be explained away by an undiagnosed mental illness such as schizophrenia or something similar um and you know as we know in the 1960s it's not like a lot of medicine was super um, developed and it's not like we also like a, there was also still a really huge stigma that we're only today starting to break so it is possible but I would just say to that why did his neighbor see two men in black poking around his house then you know like it sounds like people were following him because uh, the neighbor also yeah. saw it so I don't know and I also don't like when people use mental illness to discredit people because I think that you can be both mentally ill and also be telling the truth so yeah. you know maybe that's just me being sensitive but I I don't necessarily love when people jump to that conclusion for that reason but I think at mm -hmm. the very least even if even if okay let's say we're not taking the conspiracy pill and we're not falling down this rabbit hole and we're very logical and we're like oh it was you know whatever at the very least I think it's pretty well documented that there was at least 
a little conspiracy covering up all of the design flaws and pushing forward at any cost and not giving any regard to human life because it was all about beating the Soviets. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think you got him with this one. (laughs) While we may never know the truth of what really happened to Gus Grissom, Ed White, Roger Chaffee, Thomas Barron, and Barron's family, the fact remains that this episode centers around not just a possible conspiracy and cover-up, but also the very real deaths of so many people. It is an undeniable fact that three young astronauts lost their lives through no fault of their own, and I do want to make sure to shine a spotlight on them this episode. So before I ask you for your final thoughts, Natalia, I do want to play one last audio clip for you. This clip is an excerpt of an interview between CBS News and astronaut Ed White. In this clip, the reporter asks White why the pursuit of space travel is so important, and Ed answers. The flight that you're about to take is another step toward the moon. Could you philosophize on just why you think uh, we should go to the moon? I think there's so many questions, so many reasons why we should. Uh, I guess some of my special reasons I'll, I'll give to you. I think one of the ones that, I, that a lot of people forget about is uh, the influence that the lunar program has on our raising of our young people in the country. I think our most prime responsibility is to provide a environment so that our children be, will be able to grow up into uh, creative, useful, and good citizens. And I think that the space program, more so than anything we've done in the past, has given a stimulus to the young people and the, the very young children even, and in a, in a goal for them and a purpose for them to educate themselves as well as they can to their own capability and to have, even though they're not going to be, obviously, all become astronauts, but they, if they start out with with a certain goal when they're young and the goal is properly directed, these young people, I think, have a much more of a chance of becoming uh, useful and uh, well-educated citizens who will take care of you and I when we get older and we don't have the capability to, to direct the world. The young people will run our world for us when we get older. I guess this is a, one of the things that I feel the most strongly about. But I also feel that, uh, and this is from just a standpoint of man, I, I think that if a civilization, and I think if our country becomes so obsessed with making the the country uh, easy for us to live in and making our surroundings so comfortable that, that we're in a really a ever descending, spiraling in spiral right within ourselves. And if we don't look out and if we don't try to expand ourselves and expand our horizons, which I think the space program is the biggest example of expanding your horizons that man has ever undertaken, we're not going to progress as a nation. And probably the, the more practical viewpoint, I think that it provides a uh, great opportunity for just plain stimulating our industry, which feeds right back into making the comfort items that go back into making living good, too. So I think it, from all standpoints, it's a good program. And why we want to go to the moon specifically, well, it's the 
closest thing that we haven't explored to our Earth, and it's the first step into understanding the, the whole universe. Gus's wife, Betty, passed away at the age of 91 in 2018. In an article about her life and death for the New York Times, journalist Catherine Q. Seeley wrote the following. Ms. Grissom told an interviewer that her husband's sacrifice had helped pave the way for future missions in which other astronauts made it to the moon. Quote, I'm pretty sure he got to the moon before they did, Betty said. Of course he didn't make it, she added, but in spirit, I think he was already there. Great episode. Thank you. That was the story. I hope it wasn't too boring. I know you have to wake up in like five hours to go to your horse show, but um, just wanted to ask you for your final thoughts and your sign off. I was not bored at all. I loved that. I love a good conspiracy theory. Haunting, very haunting episode as well with the sound bites and, and all of that. Uh, that will be hard for me to sleep tonight. Yes. Well, hopefully you don't also get visited by an Shh. old ghost tonight. Shh. Hush, hush, hush. <gasps> BRB, gonna go bring my trash inside so the men in black can't go through it. Bye! Bye.